0: it 's a curious thing for me to be sitting here this evening with the intention I have not that it 's unusual for me to be sitting here and intending to give a talk, but uh, I want to speak about something that I spoke about here at the just two weeks ago at the end of a retreat I was teaching in october, and normally, I go to some degree of uh, sort of effort to, to not talk about the same topic too frequently or too much in the same place. Um, But this is something which feels of uh, real importance and significance. and uh, So I I want to speak this evening about the situation of our world and our human community. And this really is an invitation to, to listen and see what feels useful, what feels true, what feels important for you to take in. The, the Buddha's teachings of wisdom and compassion ask us to turn towards what is true. Ask us if we are concerned with the, with the reality and the experience of suffering to turn to what we see and to be willing to face what is not always easy to face in order to be able to then understand what is happening and seek for to discover what may be possible, what might be appropriate, what might be skillful in response. And our situation as a human community is, is serious. As I imagine you are aware, it's not in a way something you won't have heard of. We face at this time an unprecedented emergency in the ecology and the climate of our world. A degree of danger and destabilisation that is not something we've had to face before. And how do we respond as human beings? How do we respond when we hear about this, as I say, unprecedented climate destabilisation, accelerating environmental destruction? We hear about it happening around the globe, far away, and also not so far. From our own lives. We hear about and we witness at times (coughs) intensifying extreme weather events. We hear about peoples and families and communities losing their homes, losing their food security, their land, about rapid species loss and extinction, melting polar ice caps, degrading soil fertility, rivers and lakes poisoned by industrial waste, and oceans choking in plastic. It's understandable when we hear about such things that we perhaps find ourselves not quite sure whether to turn towards what we hear. The inclination, the tendency to somehow pull back, to shrink away from us is completely understandable. And yet it's so important for us, collectively in terms of our collective well-being. But important for us, I would say, also in terms of our own spiritual well-being, so we don't turn away. It's understandable that we might feel impotent or powerless given the vast nature of the problem and the entrenched systems which support and sustain what's going on. And for myself, I can totally relate to that. And I have, in the last... Twelve months or so, found myself drawn to engage in the context of this climate emergency with the the protest action group Extinction Rebellion, which I'm well. I know some of you know well, but many of you I think will have heard about. And I've made the conscious choice to engage in non-violent civil disobedience. So I've been arrested several times now for a range of different activities, none of which I would have imagined I would have found myself involved in just a few years ago. Blockading roads and bridges in London, I've locked myself to fellow rebels in various locations and glued myself to buildings, something I never imagined I would have done. In fact, I thought when I first heard about it, that's a really bad idea. And yet, it's interesting how circumstances can call us to step out of what's familiar and what's comfortable. All of the actions I've undertaken have been done together with others, with good hearted, like minded, caring, and deeply committed friends who, similar to myself, also, many of us subject to criminal prosecutions and penalties. For peaceful and non-violent actions that we've undertaken, from our conscience, and for me, it feels like my spiritual practice says to me, "I need to do something here, and this is something I can do." And and we see that, of course, our system responds as one would expect with the and sadly, but nonetheless, with the criminalising of peaceful protest and action, while profoundly destructive and harmful activities are legal and legitimised and supported. And I now find myself sitting here as a Dharma teacher of 30 years, uh, technically a Buddhist minister, a religious professional in some countries, um, and now a convicted criminal. It's not an easy thing. It's not an easy choice to make. And yet, in another way, it was not a choice I felt I could have taken any other way. It would have been much harder to say no. And for me, that has meant some considerable challenges to face in terms of the, really the oppressiveness and painfulness of being prosecuted even if the penalties are not extreme or, in fact, anything like it, just the process itself isn't easy. And uh, for myself, it it also limits my ability now to travel and teach in other countries and a very painful loss of and potential loss of contact with communities, Dharma communities, Buddhist communities that I've been involved with for 20, 30 years. And I find myself curiously at peace with these consequences. And this year, earlier in April and again just now in in October, I joined the Extinction Rebellion international climate protests, participating in an extended period of action of non-violent civil disobedience. And with many friends, including, and I was curious to discover, many other meditators, spiritual practitioners, followers of Buddhist teaching and other religious teachings and practices, we chose to cause ongoing peaceful disruption, seeking to bring attention to the urgent need for action in the face of the unfolding emergency. Many hundreds of us have been arrested. In fact, it's into the several thousands now. And we're being prosecuted, many of us. And again, I feel it's my spiritual practice that asks me, that calls me to act in this way. In 2018, October 2018, just a year ago, the United Nations IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the report was unequivocal it came out stating very clearly we have only until 2030 12 years then now only 11 years to make massive changes profound changes to the way our world our system our society our economy operates in order to avert extreme climate catastrophe and the report of the UN IPBES, the uh, the international intergovernmental panel on biodiversity and ecosystems. A report, again, very clear, pointing out to us the massive loss of living creatures, species and ecosystems is accelerating with a million species at risk of extinction. And further recent research and analysis suggests it's even worse than this. These reports don't actually cover the most recent data, the most recent Measurements, the most recent up-to-date information that's available. And the most up-to-date research is suggesting that we have even less time to do what needs to be done and predicts a significant risk of global social breakdown driven by food scarcity and mass migration and conflict over scarce resources. We don't have a good history, human beings, when food or water becomes scarce. And some of the reports also are pointing to the significant risks of human extinction, potentially near-term human extinction. So not just the extinction of so many of the creatures and the species we share this planet with, but this species too. If we do not change the way our society and our economy and our world is functioning, And do so quickly. So I'd like to just invite you to take a moment to breathe. To consciously breathe and feel your body sitting on the earth. As you receive this information. And I'm not imagining it's news for many of you. Maybe some of the particulars will be different or new. But the news is there. We've been hearing about it for long enough. 30, 40 years in fact. And if we just let ourselves take it in, what happens for us to contemplate your body sitting here on this earth? Our existence and that of our human and our shared living community endangered by human activity. This is dukkha. I've used this word suffering, that which is hard to bear it's hard to bear I was teaching with a, a friend and a senior Buddhist monk, Ajahn Sajito in Brighton um, a couple of weeks ago we were talking uh, in fact just, well, i mean, four weeks ago in fact just before the, the October actions in London and we were both speaking about the, uh, the situation um, with regard to climate ecology and action and I was so deeply touched, uh, Ajahn speaking about having lived his life with such a commitment of uh, 40, 50 years as a monastic, such a commitment to non-harming, to minimal impact, and sitting there saying, how, how still, having lived as good a life as he imagined he could, such deep pain and grief and sorrow for the world was in his heart. So, this is dukkha. This is that which is hard to bear. And there is a cause and an end and a path. Just as the, the Buddha's teachings of liberation understand suffering and its cause and point also to the path that leads to its end to the release, the liberation, the transformation, and healing of suffering. And these are the, the foundation teachings of the Four Noble Truths. And just as these, Each of them have an action associated with them. So the first, we are asked to understand dukkha, understand suffering, understand that life includes that which is difficult. And the second is craving, and we need to understand the way this craving, clinging, this attachment, this tendency to take hold of or resist life. This is to be let go of. There's an action in response to seeing what is true. This is always the case. And so too it is the case, it is the the case with regard to the truth of ecological and climate dukkha. It calls for action. It asks a response from us. And of course there is no one model, there is no one way, there is no one approach that must be everyone's response, but nonetheless I believe it calls for a response. And I think it's important to reflect on how we come to be here, how do we understand how can this be? It's a little bit mind-boggling at a certain level. It's hard to take in because how can we have known for 20, 30, 40 years, and more, in fact, in terms of the, the industry, particularly the fossil fuel industry, knew about this long before. And somehow we've still failed to act in any way that's effectively addressing the issue. Greenhouse gas emissions are still rising, the temperature is still increasing. And the trajectory we're currently following is one that will take us into catastrophic and unimaginable realms. And it's not that far away, it's not generations ahead of us. The only way I can make sense of it for myself, and it's it's um, it's like we're acting collectively like addicts, like we're addicted to this mode of being, to the materialism, to the comfort, to the privilege, to the, to the, the many different opportunities that our current society offers, at least those of us in fortunate circumstances within it. But like an addict, the doctors have told us our lifestyle is killing us, and our ecology, our community. But we can't seem to stop and there's something really important that the, the model of, of addiction offers us because it, it, it's founded in, in an honest recognition that actually what's happening is destructive, and it's somehow out of my control. The way I'm currently trying to deal with it isn't working. And this is something to see. We need a humility, a collective humility. What we're doing, our current response has failed. The call to government and industry to change direction is not being heard. There's a new coal mine being commissioned in the UK right now. It's happening, going ahead. The petroleum industry, and I was glued to a door outside it, at a conference where they were planning to find and, and exploit further resources Oil resources in Africa, despite the fact that the oil resources already known and established are sufficient to take us so far beyond the degree of emissions that are sustainable, but in a way we talk about the carbon budget, how much we can afford to burn if we're not to exceed two degrees warming, and even that two degrees will not be a great outcome, but certainly better than the three, four, five, and even six or seven degrees we see as possible projections for the century. And yet people seem to make money, gain power through something that is still legal and therefore seek to continue to do so. And addiction, I think, is really useful because it's also understanding it's not about blaming not about judging someone, but about acting in a way that can make a difference. And one of the models is that we, we need to sound the alarm. We need to stop colluding, it seems to me, to not enable what's happening. And one of, the, one of the concepts that comes, again, from the recovery world, and I don't know this world personally, but I have had many students and friends who have who've worked within the, the wisdom of that, of that framework, And one of the the concepts that's quite known these days is tough love. That idea that, in fact, to help someone, sometimes you have to do what they find very difficult. And what also might be difficult for yourself, to act as if, in order to no longer support their behavior. And for me, disruption, and disruption in a non-violent, in a peaceful way, creating disruption is an expression of that tough love. Of saying, I cannot and I will not allow what is continuing to keep happening because it is harmful. Even if that is annoying or frustrating or completely incomprehensible to you and it makes you or a collective group feel like they are being threatened. To actually create disruption is powerful. And it comes out of an expression or it comes out of understanding that we actually have power. And our power is in our connection and in our courage. We are not disempowered, even in a situation where we might feel small. The climate and ecological crisis is at its heart a crisis of spirit. It's not about money or material things. It's about the impoverishedness of so much of our culture, which seeks more material when it already has so much, failing to see that having more of the same will not bring happiness or satisfaction. It's a crisis of disconnection, born of not understanding that our, our connection, our interconnectedness with life is something sacred and inseparable. And that we depend upon everything around us. Everything we've called other. Everything that we've chosen to say we do not need to care about. We're at a time where we are being shown by the science and by the evidence around us of our own senses that we cannot live in that untruth of disconnection and that untruth of not valuing what is not me or mine. It's interesting, you know, the idea that there's somewhere that's called away. We throw things away. Have you ever thought about that phrase? You know, away. It's like it's somehow outside of my world, isn't it? It's like a version of other. We make something other, but it's away. But there's no away, is there? Because whatever we throw away comes back. And we're seeing it now. The plastic that we've thrown away comes back in our food and it ends up in our bodies, in our children's bodies. There's no away life doesn't have that compartmentability that our minds ascribe to it. And equally, we cannot disregard the well-being of any others or any aspect or part of this wholeness of the world without undermining our own well-being. What we do to the planet, we do to ourselves. And our current trajectory of collective self-harm, it calls for for the love and concern in our hearts to be given courageous expression. During the protests, it wasn't easy to hold our ground, to be standing, sitting, lying, outside on roads and bridges. Often the days were hot in April and in October they were wet. And always the nights were cold. And most of us didn't get a lot of sleep day after day. Discomfort and inconvenience inevitably comes with making a commitment. It's like something we notice when we practice meditation. We sit and we say, I'm going to stay here because I care about something more than just the avoidance of some moderate discomfort. Or we enter into a a yoga practice and a pose, and we stay with it through where it's not easy for us. Because when we make the change, make that choice, we align something in our hearts. And as I say, discomfort and inconvenience inevitably comes with making a commitment to what we care about. But when we make that choice to stay facing, in this case, not just discomfort, but arrest and prosecution there's a comfort that comes in the shared dedication and the sense of shared connection and the relief from the inner discomfort of being out of alignment. When we come into alignment with ourself, the deeper suffering starts to ease, even though the outer condition may be much more difficult. Just today, there was a report published with 11,000 scientists signing it. And it's in the media today, saying, We face untold suffering if we continue to collectively fail to act. And of course, it says a lot more to that, but that's kind of what's in the headlines. It's like, We know, we hear the clear and overwhelming scientific consensus calling for urgent and uncompromising action to save our children and our communities and our world from ecological devastation. And we see this call being disregarded, denied or ignored in the pursuit of profit, convenience and consumption. This is hard to bear. It's hard to bear. And of course, again, that temptation to turn away is understandable. And spiritual teachings... Dharma teachings ask us to turn towards this and open to whatever we feel in response. This is some of why we practice turning towards what is not easy and opening, because sometimes it's crucial that we do. Not just for our inner development, but for our collective existence, it seems. To open to what we feel in response and Of course, fear or grief or anger or horror, denial, numbness, scepticism, confusion, outrage, bemusement. All of this and more is completely understandable. And it's really important just as we've been practicing here over these days, that whatever we encounter, we acknowledge and we give space and we don't imagine or believe that somehow we should be having a different response. That somehow we should feel something or not. It's always important to trust what comes. Whatever it might be for you. Whatever it might be hearing these words. And it may be something tender and exquisitely painful. It may be something that's completely overwhelming. It might be that one doesn't seem impacted. Please breathe and feel your body. And if anything of what you're hearing as I'm speaking feels like it's more than enough or too much to take in, it's okay. You can go slowly and it's fine to just turn your attention to your body and breathe. And soften and connect with the earth beneath you and the space around you. One of the one of the elements of the the movement of extinction rebellion that drew me to when I first read about it towards the end of last year was a understanding about non-blaming and shaming and much of my early experience as a young man involved in activism was uh, toxic levels of anger. Um, And it felt entirely justified towards the the, the perpetrators of all kinds of ecological harm that I was concerned about. But it also was (coughs) profoundly destructive. And just as we learn in meditation practice to, to bring kindness to the places of difficulty, to bring forgiveness to our own limitations, our own reactivity. So too the spiritual wisdom that's called for in engaging with a situation like this asks us to open our hearts. And as we contemplate both the actions of those who may seek material gain from this harmful and destructive activity, And equally to our own personal limitations and changing how we live. It's so easy to find ourselves drawn into judgment, into blame, into anger, into condemnation. But both looking inwardly and looking outwardly, it's so important in the teachings of of wisdom and compassion. They remind us again and again that identifying identifying with and acting on judgment or anger and blame towards others or ourselves, it's not helpful. It's completely understandable that it would arise. But it's not helpful. And we need to, I think, seek out support from our friends, loved ones, in our communities and in the places we find nourishment, connection in the world, maybe the natural world. To acknowledge our feelings and our responses. To feel the grief and the pain. Or the numbness, or the deadness, or the rage that may be there. It's important that we take time to immerse ourselves in where we feel connection and nourishment. To the, Go to the water, or to the hills, or to the forest, or maybe it's an art, or movement, or music, or creativity. These things are so important for us. To find what brings nourishment, to find what brings reconnection find what allows us to hold the space in our heart for what is so hard to hold. To understand blindness, human blindness, sometimes we just don't see. This is what the Buddha spoke about. We don't see. And uh, Greta Thunberg said it beautifully and In a way, with painful simplicity, she said, I think in the the UN conference in, um, in America just a few weeks ago, she said, I have to believe you don't really understand. Because if you understand and you continue to do what you're doing, then you're evil. And I don't think we're evil, and she doesn't either. And I think she has some real wisdom there to understand blind is to see that there is no fruitful outcome to blaming, judging, and attacking. But having acknowledged that, one is still asked to, and in in a way compelled, I think, to find ways to harness our love and our care and our concern and demand urgent, effective action from national and world governments in our leaders, in our country, in our world, and also to make such changes as we can individually, to see what can be done here. The scale and urgency of the situation requires, it demands concerted collective action, which requires central government and international cooperation. We tend to operate on a very individual individualized sort of way of viewing and feeling and often the responsibility is put on you or we at individual level have to do something different and the situation is way beyond that that's useful, that's important but it's way beyond that and of course we may easily and understandably feel despair and frustration as we see this call to change direction being ignored The subsidising of the fossil fuel industry while support for renewables renewables is undermined. It's so hard to hold that. And yet this is where we are. This is what asks us to see what (coughs) may be done here. Then our actions in London and actions that others took courageously around the world too but where I was in London again and again, the police would approach us in large numbers, having been told to use the full force of the law. And we would sit together in solidarity with each other and with all the people and all the beings and all the living things are in danger. And somehow we found in that a courage, even in the face of quite strong and vigorous police... Attention being given to us. And we even found at times a genuine place to open our hearts to the officers doing their job. And sometimes chanting to the police officers, we love you and we're doing this for your children too, as they carried us off. Not that we're loving their function or their official action in this case. Not that we're denying that sometimes police officers and the police as an institutional organization is profoundly unskillful, harmful and at times affected by institutional racism, prejudice and uh, discrimination, but that as human beings we also have to see that even those who are the agents of state repression are also human beings. To not close our hearts is actually one of the most important protections we have when we engage in any transformative activity, whether it be inner transformative activity where we need to bring kindness into our reactivity, to our own experience, or outer transformative activity where we need to seek can I keep my heart open while acting courageously and in the face of force? When, when I've got a whole new understanding of the reason they call it the police force and that's because I've had a pretty privileged life up to now others will know well why that word is there and yet interestingly non-violent mass civil disobedience a whole lot of people choosing to sit down and say no I'm not leaving sorry unless you actually literally pick me up and take me away it, this, this activity gives ordinary people a voice that cannot be ignored and it's interesting how it works that somehow harnessing the power of our collective concern through disruptive action and sacrifice people being willing to put at risk their comfort, their convenience, their liberty and it works outcomes aren't guaranteed in any situation but it can work, it can really make a difference and The Indian independence movement, in the face of the British establishment, the government, the British Raj that was known in in India, Gandhi inspired and led. The people chose to sit down in front of the army and initially the army was told to shoot and sometimes they did, but when there are hundreds of people sitting there, they can't, they're human beings the vulnerability of non-violence, non-aggression, ultimately has the power to overcome the force and the violence in the system. My grandmother, who's now 102, um, she's Bengali, she's uh, um, um, one quarter Bengali, she, uh, she was part of that movement, that's how she met my grandfather, who was also there, he's Swedish, huh? don't ask me how he got there. Um. <coughs> But there's something for me about that sense of people, particularly in the global south, and in much, much more challenging circumstances, having really actually taken risks with their lives and continuing to do so and have done so over decades to try and protect and preserve what was important, what is important. And there's good research to show that this is effective in making... Entrenched systems shift, political and other systems actually move in the face of vested interests and yeah, entrenched views. And I've been arrested on a number of occasions, like I said, and um, what's been interesting is actually speaking with the police officers in that situation where there's a sense of a confrontation up to a certain point. They're trying to move you, you are trying not to be moved, but At a certain point, okay, that's their job and this is my job, okay? And interestingly, once they've actually taken you away from wherever you are, it stops being confrontational, like you're arrested, they're just a chap sitting there or a woman sitting there, um, or a person of non-defined gender, because I shouldn't assume that. But um, the experience would often change in that, oh, actually, now we're just human beings. We're both sitting there wondering why it's taking so long to get to the police station. In fact, we know it's because some really annoying people have blocked all the roads. (laughs) We can't get to the police station. We're stuck in this van for hours. (laughs) And we talked. And it was really interesting. Sometimes they were really interested and open to hear. Not always. Sometimes I felt myself with a real warm connection to this person as a human being. And I'm sure on one occasion that an officer who'd arrested me several days before, when he found me being arrested another time, he came up just to say hello. And it was like, you know, remember me? And he didn't quite do it like that, but it was just actually really sweet. And on another occasion I saw an officer take the phone off their, off their jacket, put an XR sticker on the back of it, and click it back onto there. So you couldn't see it, because obviously that's not allowed. But I was like, "Huh." Oh, actually something about this process of, in you know, way, presenting our vulnerability with our hearts open is powerful and impactful. And I just want to say that, again, I know that not everybody's experience of encountering the police is like this. Even though, as I say, I'm a quarter Indian, I... I pass for being white, middle-class bloke, which I am, it seems. And so I get a pretty good deal. And that's not everybody's experience. And yet somehow including even those who we perceive to be the problem seems to be needed here, even those who seem to be the opponent to keep our heart open. Because as I see it, any authentic and truly transformative spirituality recognises the value and the sacredness of all living things, all living systems, and asks us to care about them. And not just to care about them, actually to care for them. Spirituality. When we understand the profound depth of our interconnectedness, our interrelatedness, the way in which we cannot be and are not separate from all that is around us. It asks us to prioritise the collective well-being over personal gain, personal advantage. And we know this. This This is how a family makes sense. This is how a community makes sense. This is how a nation makes sense. But somehow we've got to extend our vision of that to include everything. And to let go of our comfort and convenience and take risks with our privilege, even our liberty, in the service of our shared interest, in the service of the common good. This may be seen as a sacred duty. And it's again, it's not like, a, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I, I'm not suggesting that for anyone it's supposed to look at any particular way. But there's something about... When one understands and feels infinitely and like how deeply painful it is to feel unable to make a response to a situation calling for one, calling so clearly for a response, to find some way to make a response that feels meaningful and maybe has some capacity to have some efficacy to it. the kind of pain involved in the discomforts and the losses and the cost and all of that is actually less than the pain that is healed by finding some way to act with integrity, with authenticity, with courage. There's, a, there's a, a deepening spiritual well-being when we live and when we act in service of the fragile web of life that we are part of. Martin Luther King said it like this. He said, Never be afraid to do what is right. Society's punishments are small, compared to the wound we inflict on our soul when we look the other way. And again, Dr. King's incredible loving wisdom and the courage of his you know, his leadership and his example in the American Civil Rights Movement, again, a nonviolent movement and you know, following the inspiration of Rosa Parks and the you know the Freedom Riders, choosing to break the law, to call attention to a profound injustice unfolding. So when we don't look the other way, we start to see that, oh yeah, our material comfort and security, actually, it doesn't do it for us if we aren't sustaining and nourishing our spiritual well-being. I spent one night in October locked to a fellow rebel on Whitehall outside the Ministry of, Depart- the Ministry of Defence. And we, were, we were there till about five in the morning because the, the protest site had been cleared and all our companions had been arrested or forced to leave and uh, there were 20 police officers surrounding us but they couldn't move us because their specialist teams for cutting through the lock-on equipment that we were using had gone home for the night. It was really cold. They took our blankets away. And they were really not happy with the fact that they were forced to stand there all night with us. We didn't think they had to stay, but they somehow felt they did. And it was very interesting that process of, okay, you know, where are my inner resources here? Sitting without really being able to move very much, because attached through a sort of a, a metal device to someone else. Um, we're having cushions for hours. It's like, oh, okay, I remember this from meditation practice. (laughs) And the stress, the uncertainty, that, you know, at times, aggression, verbal, not physical, from the police. Like, what are you doing here? Why are you making my my night cold? And, And just kind of having to find a way back and see where I might start to react and want to kind of... Engage to verbally spar with them as a defence, and actually just come back. Now, actually, can I come back into a? Okay, I just want to stay in a place of open-heartedness and kindness, even though physically it's it's really hard to be here. I've come to understand that uh, meditation practice is essentially an internal articulation of non-violent civil disobedience. civil disobedience is essentially an expression of the practice that I've been learning for the last 30 years, practicing for the last 30 years. When I say that non violent, that, that place of turning towards our care and our love is the foundation. So as we practice, we learn, we see, we start off blaming other people. When we first start practicing, all the reasons my experience is difficult is mostly someone else's fault. As we practice a bit more, we start to realize, actually, no, it's actually more like it looks like it's my responsibility. There's a, there's a maxim in, the, uh, uh, in the, the teachings of the Stoics that says the unlearned blame others. Those who are learning blame themselves. Those who have learned blame no one. And so before we become very self-aware, it's mostly everyone else's fault what's going on. As we start to become self-aware. It looks like it's mostly my fault. In the end, when we understand the nature of conditionality and the way that we don't actually choose the way it plays. We can influence it, but we don't get to control it or determine outcomes. When we see that, the whole process of blaming makes no sense anymore. That doesn't mean we don't still choose to stand up and say no to what is unhelpful, unskillful, or harmful. And so internally, that process of bringing kindness to our experience, to ourselves, letting go of the tendency to judge others or to judge ourselves is the foundation of nonviolence inwardly. And then civil disobedience. Well, what that means internally is no longer being compelled to, to enact those internal injunctions that arise as thoughts or as beliefs or as ideas or as compulsions that say, you must do this when we know it actually doesn't serve our well-being. We'll say, you must not do that, when we know it would serve my well-being. This is the basis of inner freedom. When well, we start to understand, and we do not need to identify with all those compelling forces or injunctions or demands that arise internally, that we actually start to look and see what actually contributes to well-being. And we follow that. What contributes to freedom? We follow that. And what leads to suffering, to harm, to bondage, we start to find a way to no longer have to follow that. And likewise, then, we might find in our engagement in the world that that sense of disobedience, seeing, oh, well, the law says this, but in fact, this law is enabling or protecting or advancing something that is unsustainable, unsupportable, unethical and ultimately unjust. At the trial that for me concluded just a few weeks ago, um, the judge was really clear to say at the beginning of his giving the judgment, this is not a court of ethics and morals. It's a court of law. And it was very interesting that he chose to say that because I think he got from what we'd said about what we were doing and why we are doing it, that actually the moral case would have made a different answer. But he said, I'm bound by an oath to enforce the law. The law says, you're not allowed to glue yourself to a hotel door and stop people getting through it. <laughs> okay, there's reasons for that. I know. We can and bow to that. He didn't say it quite often, but that's, that was the outcome. So in terms of non judgment Seeing what it means to open our hearts to those places in ourselves we might feel not okay about some of our choices. No one makes perfect choices. I certainly don't. It's important to let ourselves feel where that might be. So, and I, I try and like let myself feel when I, I, I know I do it all the time. I choose to drive here from my home, ten miles away. I can cycle. I do cycle sometimes, but. Often I don't leave enough time, don't feel like I have enough energy. I just can't face the amount of mud and rain between me, between here and there. And yet just to feel, and I'm sorry that I choose that, but I still do, at least for now. Letting ourselves feel that so we can feel the sorrow rather than blaming myself for it. And and there's a profound sorrow to see what it must be for a human being to disregard the well-being of others around them in the service of their own personal gain. It's like, that's a condition that sounds to me like it must be pretty horrific on the inside. Even if it looks like it's pretty fortunate and successful on the outside according to our materialistic values. From the point of view of spiritual values, I would say it's a hell of Which doesn't mean I want to encourage them. In fact, it means that actually liberating even the perpetrator is part of the transformation, because... One wishes to care for them too. And as to how it looks, of course, I I don't I can't know what you need to do, could do, should do. That's really not for me at all. But I would really invite and encourage you to inform yourself to to contemplate what's possible, what you feel interested and moved by, called to, to listen to your heart, so that you can find what is authentic for you, and however that looks. It's really important to suggest to say here that you know the pathway I've taken is what makes sense for me, according to my life and situation. And for many people, that isn't what would be authentic or wise or appropriate. And I sometimes use the model, and I, I quite like it, of, a, of, you know, in the fire service, we have, there's people who are willing to go into a burning building, because they're trained and equipped and they know how to do that, and that's a life choice they've made, and that's great. And we, we, we can bow to them, taking a risk on behalf of all of us. And we see how that, that capacity is something that, when people take risks on behalf of the collective good, it calls everyone into a sense of care and concern and engagement. But there's also, of course, the people who stand outside the burning building, holding the fire hose, and then there's the people who drive the engine, and then there's the people who sit in the back office filling out forms to requisition the uniform and the the fireproof coat that the person going into the burning building needs and they're all equally important and there's someone else who just makes a contribution to the sort of the, the fireman's pension fund or the firewoman's pension fund and all of that contributes to putting out the fire so we each have to find our own response there isn't a one response, there isn't a one way there are many ways many approaches and of course even finding our response engaging as we can doesn't guarantee an outcome but it is my, it is my belief, it is my faith it is my deep trust and confidence that when we engage from that place of deep care It makes a difference. It makes a difference. And even if the final outcomes in an external level are unaffected, the inner level is profoundly changed. It's the spiritual well-being of our human community that is most endangered, in my view. And it's interesting to just be sharing and speaking about this. I still feel uplifted by the atmosphere of, of heartfelt love, of peace, of goodness, which was with us pretty much every time, even as we were removed from every protest site. Even you know, in so many different situations, where eventually, of course, the force of the police is greater. But there's something else that happens where it feels like the force of the heart is ultimately greater still. And just in terms of the specifics of you know, causing disruption, which seems like possibly dubious and certainly controversial as a choice, it's clear it gathers people's attention and makes them focus on the topic, even if they don't like the people who are doing it. It's not a popularity contest. It's about what will generate attention and action, because we know the information. What we don't have is the public awareness, or the awareness is coming, but we don't have the focus on, oh, this needs to be attended to now, and that is needed in order for the government also to make it the priority. And we can see since these actions, and contributed to also by the actions of others, the school strike movement, Greta Thunberg, the, the, you know, the, the contribution of, of wise and respected academics and you know um, David Attenborough and others the public discourse is changing it's become something we can talk about now and it wasn't 12 months ago you can have a conversation with someone on the street not that they're going to agree with you but it's a topic to be talked about (coughs) at least it seems to me and our parliament declared a climate emergency. I mean, they haven't done anything much about it yet. But that's still, in terms of the shift in the consciousness and the public acknowledgement, that's big. That's big. And setting a net zero emissions date for 2050, it's way too late, but it's, it's there. It's more than was before. And it can, once you've said it needs to be done, there's the possibility to negotiate when it needs to be done, which is a lot sooner. And there is so much we can do to mitigate, to reduce the harm, the devastation, the destruction. If our nations act collectively, act urgently, and we are part of them, our voice is part of their, their heart and their mind, finding ways to use our voice, to be part of the collective voice. how are you doing with this? Because I've been talking for quite a while, and there's a little bit more. I never quite know how long it will take me to say what I want to say. Are you all right if I continue a little? Do you want to take a moment to stretch, or if you need to move your body in any way, please do. Um. So when I talked about different possibilities of responses, I was uh, sharing with a friend in a pub in um, and uh, I think it was in February, and, uh, and my friend said, he, you know, I don't, don't know that I could be arrested. I have a son to look after. I said, that makes complete sense. I don't have children to look after. And he said, but, you know, I think I'd like to write a poem. And we were talking about um, one of the things that Gail Bradbrook, one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, said. When she was talking about the topic, she was saying, we have to be asking ourselves in this situation, what does it mean to be a good ancestor? What does it mean to be a good ancestor? And anyway, my friend Dabrick, he lives locally. He's a uh, teacher of Qigong and um, and, uh, Chinese Chinese medicine. He he wrote this poem, which I'd like to share with you. It's entitled, The Good Ancestor. I read it on Waterloo Bridge the day we were finally cleared off at the end of the April Rebellion. And uh, So I'll recite it, and I'll repeat the first and last stanza after I've recited. Every day I walk a hundred years to the hill where my great-great-granddaughter sits. I carry words of blessing and reach to touch her back. But feeling me near, she turns, sad-eyed and heavy with grief. What was it like, she asks, when the great whales swam? When the birds sang you awake, when the rains came soft and the soil smelled sweet underfoot, and the blessings catch in my throat. On darker days, she turns her famished face, charred, and eyes sunk in their bony orbits, burn with curses, and the blessings froth at my mouth like with the poisonous spume of betrayal. On the darkest of all days I walk the hundred years and find no one there. Let today be the bright day, let today be the bright day. I lay my hand upon her back and feeling me there she turns and blesses me, saying, your love was fierce enough, sweet ancestor, your love was fierce enough. Every day I walk a hundred years to the hill where my great-great-granddaughter sits. I carry words of blessing and reach to touch her back. Let today be the bright day. Let today be the bright day. I lay my hand upon her back. And feeling me there, she turns and blesses me, saying, your love was fierce enough, sweet ancestor. Your love was fierce enough. So I don't know the pathways that each of our hearts may take. I don't even know the pathways that mine will take until it takes them. But I would like to invite you to remember that the future is always uncertain and that our spiritual practice is a foundation for meeting whatever comes with an open heart. As we face the actuality of the situation we find ourselves in, it's so important we we connect with the kindness and the love that is there in the very depths of our being. That we find ways to express that in action with courage, with compassion, and with commitment. And that we really make a practice at the same time of acknowledging and appreciating all that is fortunate, all that is beautiful, all that is blessed and precious and allowing ourselves to be touched and nourished by the gratitude of the goodness that is in this world and the blessing of the connections with people and place and creature and plant and habitat that we enjoy, that we appreciate. And at the same time, we have to practice bowing to the the natural, the lawful and the unstoppable unfoldment of life to make our peace with the unknownness, the uncontrollableness. Knowing that, of course, as I said, we cannot be sure of outcomes. But if we have given what we can give, if we have done what we can do, then we can just bow. There isn't anything more that is asked of us in this life. And as Leonard Cohen said in Boogie Street, he said, And so, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear. Is it not still remarkable, inexplicable and blessed that we're here at all? Thank you for your attention, for your presence, and for your practice. Should we just sit a moment together quietly? So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we may we be touched deeply by the, the kindness and the understanding of our profound interconnectedness, that our lives may be an offering to the, the vastness of life itself. And that we may trust the journey that each of us finds ourselves moved to take. For our own well-being. For the welfare of all beings. For the well-being of all that lives.